Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello. And welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hart, aka Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Building Sustainability consists of conversations with designers, builders, makers, dreamers, and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. This is part two of my chat with Alex Gibbons. Uh, if you are here before part one, switch over to episode 57 i'm back at the end enjoy the episode and i suppose that hits the nail on the head when it comes to what is blocking the conventional building industry from using these materials is Right, here we go. Settle in yeah. for a rant here. Yeah, okay. settle in for a rant. So, is this a classic Gibbons yeah, sermon? You, yeah, it is really, yeah. Okay. We'll get back to the SPAB in a minute. But Hang on, I'm going to take my boots off. <laughs> get comfy. Yeah. So the paradigm at the moment, he's used the word paradigm, so you know he's gone in strong. something's on the way, <laughs> <laughs> is, all comes back to this thing about we consider – well, society in the UK generally considers builders to need to be told what to do and why to do it. Mm. And the person that usually does that is, I won't use the A word, but a specifier. And that specifier often has no practical experience at all. So it comes mm. back to this thing again about academics and practical ability and needing to have both to be really to do the job properly. You know, we've been, I've heard this on your podcast before, but back in the major building of cathedrals in the medieval period, there was no architects, there was master builders. And, you know, we've been here before, so I won't go into that again. But what we're now missing is that kind of master builder level that can kind of translate things practically and set stuff out and do all the stuff. So because we've kind of broken that paradigm, predominantly in the mid-1800s when 
when the A word, by which I mean architect, kind of first came on the scene, we've broken that paradigm now. So the conventional industry, uh, kind of building industry, relies on there being that specifier at the top, telling people what to do. If there's a mistake, if something goes wrong, then it goes back up the tree and usually, I mean, how many times have you ever heard of an architect going bust and how many times have you ever heard of a contractor going bust? Contractors go bust all the time and everyone kind of covers their, am I allowed to say arses, all, all the way up and down the tree? Bottoms? Uh, uh, derriers. <laughs> derriers, yeah. All the way up and down the tree. And usually it's the middleman that gets nobbled. Mm-hmm. or the people at the bottom of the pile, which usually land up being the subcontractors. So everyone is understandably scared of their own shadow and afraid to try anything which might go wrong. Um, so, yeah, if you're working that paradigm, I wouldn't want to be, even I, I mean, I don't work with architects and I don't work with, um, that's just going to rub everyone up the wrong way now, but I... I have made the con- conscious decision not to work with architects or specifiers or main contractors. Um, so I don't subcontract to anyone. Mm-hmm. I only work directly to clients. And that works because I'm working predominantly on the repair of vernacular buildings, um, by which I mean small-scale houses, barns, miniature castles from time to time. But you know, not 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 big ones. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that works, and so therefore, I can do experimental stuff. If it goes wrong, I go and put it right, and there's not all this carry on about like, oh, I'm going to sue you because you got it wrong, and this person should have done this and should have covered their ass like this. It's a two way thing of kind of respect, trust. And that's what I build with my clients over time. And I've built, I've built a reputation around that in working in one specific place, mm-hmm. which maybe I should come on. Can I come on to that now? Yeah, we could talk about how you're the only earth builder in your region. Yeah. <laughs> well, that helps, definitely. Um, so... I mentioned Peter Messenger earlier. So while I was on the fellowship, I visited him. He showed me around the mud buildings of the Solway Plain. And I was looking for my place to be. And through him, I found it. He basically said, right, you you could move here. And I think you could probably earn a living. And there's about 300 clay buildings left on the Solway Plain. And there's no one here to repair them. And because of that, we use we lose several listed examples, even listed examples every year. Um, And he said, so it's been my career's work to try and train people up and builders up to take it seriously and come and repair them. And you're the man for the job. So I went, all right, yeah, sounds good. So (laughs) (laughs) All all right, yeah, if you like. (laughs) <laughs> and I actually, I, I, I found I totally fell in love with the landscape as well. Like it, it, the I don't for people that don't know where the Solway Plain is, which you won't be on your own there. It's that bit west of Carlisle, which most people think is the sea. Mm. Um, so it's we're talking 
we're actually talking about the north coast of England, which everyone, oh, there's no north coast of England. Well, check it out. There is, and it's the Solway. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's great. It's, so it's like the estuary that comes in. And on and the Cumbrian... Just, just on the, the this side of, of the Scottish border. Just, yeah. Yeah. Just. So ju- uh, the Solway Plain is within England, but where I live is in Scotland. Right. Um, so I cross the border every day. Um, so, yes, so that's that. Um, yeah, so I said, yeah, okay. And then Peter took me to see one of a listed example of a clay building, mm-hmm. um, which was just over the border in Scotland, um, which was Priors Lynn. We met with the estate manager. It was part of the Buclew estate at the time. Duke of Buclew, I think, still is the biggest landowner in the UK still, private landowner. Um and met with the estate manager. Peter said to them, look, you need someone to repair this building, and this guy can do it. And sure enough, they asked for price. I gave them price, and they said yes. And that's how things kicked off on the Solway, really. And I've mm-hmm. never not had work up here ever since, which is not really what I expected, if yeah. I'm being honest. I expected to have to fill the gaps with doing a bit of travelling, uh, but um, I mean, I, I was, I had made the conscious decision while I was on the fellowship that I wanted to be in one geographic location and specialise in that kind of geographic location. Yeah, because um, all the best craftspeople that I'd met, and this is just my experience. I'm not saying I'm not talking smack on people that are itinerant because I did that for several years and. Actually, I think that's a really useful stage in the process as well Mm. to travel around being an itinerant kind of journeyman and getting lots of different perspectives and experience from different places and from different masters is absolutely essential. Um, But then I had also seen that the people that had kind of, that I respected as craftspeople the most had kind of done that and then decided to settle on one place and really deeply get into their craft in that one place. Yeah. Um, and I'm talking about people like Anthony Goode and like Rob Lay, for instance, as well in Lincolnshire, the the, the mud stud, mud and stud mm-hmm. man, um, uh, who should really look him up. He's incredible top craftsman. Um, I, I think and- the mud stud is... Uh- Quite the quite the compliment. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. But I think it's so. So I should. Sorry, I should explain that he specialises in. That's a really geeky mud building joke, isn't it? For mm-hmm. anyone that doesn't know. So um, uh, he specialises in something called a mud and stud building, um, and that's a basically a timber frame with lats nailed to the outside of it, and then mudded around a bit like wattle and daub but not quite. Is it also called steak and rice? If you're in Scotland. Yeah. yeah. Love that. Do you know what? Yeah. Someone someone emailed me the other day asking, uh, they've got a, a clay house in uh, Whitchurch um, and it's like Buckinghamshire. And they said, yeah, I, w- I need to take the cement render off the grumplings. 
And I was Ooh. like, what, what on earth is the Grumplings? Is that the I think I've house? had a night like that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and she sent me this this old document, and it's like the Grumplings are just what they call the foundations. It's like, oh, Gosh. I love a bit of local, really localised uh, sort of slang knowledge. I like so, that too, a Grumpling. Oh, dear. Mm. Great. Okay, good. You could be a Grumpling. Oh, I remember that. I could, well, I basically am a, a, a grumplet. No, I'm not that small. <laughs> a grumplode? A grumplode, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, where were we going with that? I've just distracted I've, you. I've, no, I, I was off on one again, wasn't I? Yeah, it was um, good. I like that. Oh, yeah, so we. So, yeah. And then I had work since, so that was oh, nice. So, so, um, so, yeah. What's the? I'm aware that there's a, a sort of specialism of uh, of building type, uh, earth building type in your region. Yes, is, it's pretty unique, isn't it? It is unique, but it shouldn't be because it's the best way to build with mud, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Um, so it's called clay dabbing up in the northwest of England. Mm-hmm. Um, on the Solway Plain, and it's free-form earth walling, by which I mean there's um, no formwork used, um, and it's mixed wet and applied to the wall and sculpted up in much the same way as cob. The difference between clay dabbing and cob is that with cob, you usually build about, I don't know, 18 inches to two foot at a time, let it dry, and then come and build your next lift on top of that. Whereas the clay dabbing method is a continuous build method in which you kind of build four inches at a time and put a layer of fiber between each of your four inch lifts. Um, because you're putting that amount of fiber in it, it pulls a lot more of the moisture out of it and actually structurally makes it a lot better in compression. So it means that you can, I mean, there's accounts from the, I think it's late 1700s of them building whole clay buildings in a single day, all the clay walls just in a day with 20 20 people. Whereas you couldn't do that with a cob building. Um, Mm, With cob, you get that, when you get to a certain height, you get the bottom starting to to lose shape, don't you? You've got it, yeah. You get your slumping and then it's curtains, really. You've got to stop and come back to it. Um, Or go on to the next job if you're a, if you're a canny mud builder and you've got four or five jobs on the go, you just kind of cyclically work around them. But mm. no, with clay dabbing, um, it's great stuff. And I, I mean, I think the reason that that happened in this part of the world is predominantly for the fact it never stops raining. Um, so if you've got a good window of weather, you need to get the job done and you can't. Yeah come back and expect it to dry out and all that type of thing. Um, Tarps didn't exist. Tarps didn't exist. And yeah. And yeah, it was just, you needed to get on with the job. The other real big reason about it is because it meant you could build houses in a day. I, where my place is, is one of the parishes, which is called the debatable lands, which was kind of heavily fought over. Um, Well, really, throughout history right from the saxon period until the union of the crowns um and it's kind of like a buffer zone hence the name debatable lands it's my parish and the one south of it 
um, is, yeah, was kind of not claimed, but claimed, but also not claimed um, by both the English and Scottish crowns until the Union of the Crowns. And they put all the nastiest people there to knock the hell out of each other instead of the crowns, Um, (laughs) which, yeah, worked seemingly really well. So because it was such a warring environment, a lot of places were knocked or burned down. Um, And so it was essential to be able to build a new one quickly and not expect it to last too long. Um, It just so happens that my one lasted. Mm, How Um, long has it lasted? Well, that's a good question. So it, I think it's listed as late 18th century. So that would put it kind of late 1700s, maybe 1770, 1780, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably quite a bit older than that. I would probably put it as mid 1600s. Okay. I think I spoke to the guy that wrote the listing. And what in the 1600s? No, it wasn't. Don't be, don't be silly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it was a chap that went around and did them in the 70s, and he said, ah. well, it was a bit naughty to me, really. I, what I really should have said is not later than late 17th century. And the reason for that, uh, sorry, late 18th century, so late 1700s, and the reason for that is that the Duke of Buccleuch actually outlawed building in clay during the agricultural improvements in the late 1700s, uh-huh. And the reason he did that was because of this whole thing about if people were building temporary structures on their land that they were renting off him, um, he couldn't charge them good rents. Whereas during mm. the agricultural improvements, he outlawed building in clay and turf. Um, he knocked down all of the clay buildings um, and rebuilt them in stone um, which meant that ever since the late 1700s, early 1800s, those rents have increased exponentially and still are rented out today. You know, it's uh, always making him out to be this evil, you know, capitalist. But there's also, I mean, I suspect that the Beclua state would say, well, actually, we were improving the living conditions of our tenants. That was the aim. Mm-hmm. Um, when you read contemporary accounts at the time, Everyone seemed to love living in their mud buildings and weren't terribly delighted about getting moved to their new stone buildings and having to pay extortionate rent. So I don't know. There's probably a bit of truth in both. It's easy yeah. to easy to take one at the landowners, isn't it? And, it, and it's, you know, it's fun as well. Um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's an it's a interesting thing. I mean, it's very much... It's very much kind of the lowland clearances. You know, we talk about the highland clearances quite a bit where people were turfed out of their turf houses. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, the same thing happened in the south of Scotland. It's just much much less talked about, predominantly because the Duke of Buccleuch still owns everything the light touches. Um, so, yeah, that's changing, I might add. Um, and it changed with Priors Lynn because... I mean, Jeffrey, you came and worked with me on that building when we first did it, which was yeah. really nice uh, to work together over here. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's so it's a Category A listed building, um, which means it's the kind of 
same listing as Edinburgh Castle. I mean, it's a because it, of its significance, it's supposed to be the last remaining clay building in the south of Scotland. And at one time, um, anyone who wasn't the hoi polloi would have lived in a building of that nature. It's also crack framed. Um, so, yeah, it's really a very rare one-off building. So it's very highly protected. How come do you think it, it survived? Well, it's a good question and one that I don't have an answer to. The only convincing thing I can say is that it's tucked out the way pretty nicely. Um, I also think it must have been something to do with the tenant of Priors Lynn Farm who um, who would have owned it. He would have been a tenant to the Beclue estate, but he was quite a wealthy chap that had been a... Um, I actually think he'd gone and mapped the Congo or something like that. He was one of these types. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, you know the sort. Mm, um, the sort of the golf mapping the, the Congo. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So he was, I think, from a fairly wealthy background. Um, and why he wanted, he must have wanted to retain that building for some reason, whether it's because. I like to think it's maybe because he'd kind of grown up in a building like that and then it kind of, I don't know, something had changed in his family which meant they'd come into money or something like that. I don't know. That's the story I like to tell. But I have no convincing answer, I'm afraid. Um, mm. Yeah, so it's just extremely lucky that it has survived. Um, so because it was Category A listed, the, the estate had to do something to repair it because when we turned up there... It was really on its last legs, wasn't it? I mean, it was. It was, yeah. If it wasn't for the scaffold to... roof, it was would have been. Yeah. Practically done for. Yeah. So the deal was, we'd go in and repair the clay walls, and then they would do something with the roof, um, which mean which would mean it could become a functional building again. So we went and did the work on the walls and then a couple of years passed and I kept popping up there just to keep an eye on it to see how our repairs were faring. And they never re-roofed it in those two years. So I emailed the estate manager and said, what are you doing? Like you've, you, you, know, you spent some money on getting those clay walls repaired and you do know that it's going to kind of undo itself if... Um, if you don't put a new roof on it. Uh, oh, we know, we know, but we don't know what to do. and All the usual excuses. So I said, well, are you interested in selling it? And they just about snapped my hand off. I mean, <laughs> to, to them, it was a massive liability, you know. So if you imagine, if you own a substantial proportion of Scotland and you want probably as few Category A listed buildings on your land as you possibly can, unless it's like Drumlanrick Castle or whatever, you know, like mm -hmm. your main seat in which you can show off and put your paintings in. Um, a crumbly you know, old clay barn is not, not It's not what you want. It's not what you want. So I don't. I think that they couldn't believe their luck when I, when I said, would you be interested in selling it? Um, so we had a bit of an arm wrestle and... Managed to buy it off them, nice. which is great. Yeah, and it's actually a rare story of, you know, they gave it to me at a, a very favourable price, and it was a rare story of a landowner actually, I think, genuinely wanting to do the right thing. They knew they weren't the people for the job, 
they didn't want to spend the money, so they were happy to pass it on to somebody that did. Mm. Which you know, and there was money in it for them as well at the end of the day. But yeah. you know, I like um, that uh, in that story you have uh, just by what is it, probably a quarter of an acre or something, you have reduced the major landowners' yeah. land amount just yeah. a little bit. Just, well, just, just chipped a bit off. Yeah, <laughs> just doing your part. <laughs> just doing my bit for the people. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, I bought it, and then I had to figure out. I mean, I genuinely bought it because it was. I mean, I couldn't bear to see it deteriorate anymore. Hmm. And you know, and because also, you thought, why, why have just one? Old, uh, Why have building? one derelict mud building, which is worthless, when you could have two? Yeah. yeah. Um, You've got a pair. Yeah. <laughs> these things, actually, joking aside, these things do tend to happen in, in pairs. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you do one thing, people seem to come to you and go, well, you've done that. Why don't you do that as well? And for people like me, it's very hard to say no. <laughs> and so these things yeah tend to kind of snowball so um yeah so i had to figure out what to do with it and just to bring it on to the next topic i suppose which we're hopefully we're going hutting we're going hutting we're going in the realms of hutting thank thanks thanks spoiler alert <laughs> i mean it's just a shame you didn't listen to, to daniel's podcast because he chatted about improvements he chatted about uh hutting you see, well, the, so Daniel has worked with me on mm. Prior's Link quite a bit and on other jobs as well. And this is the type of thing I can imagine. I can imagine it because this is the type of thing that tends to feature in both our ramblings and yeah. my general daily morning sermons. <laughs> um, so, Just... yeah. <laughs> well keep keep going like i didn't mean to to interrupt your your hutting thing because we only just touched on it with daniel i'd i'd be interested to know uh yeah good get, get right. your your views on what it is and what it's doing and why well i hope i won't repeat too much of what he's already said but um so two days after i bought it perchance the hutting legislation came in and i looked at this thing and a hut, and uh, please write in to Jeffrey and, and explain why I'm wrong. Um, don't write to me. Um, but is a, a hut can be defined as a building of internal, um, internally less than thirty square meters. Um, has to be built out of materials which leave little or no trace at the end of its life. Mm-hmm. Um, the wording is normally off grid, um, which I take I took to mean is off grid, um, and oh, can't be your principal residence, which is key. But with that being said, there's no limit on the amount of nights you can stay there as long as it's not your principal residence. And what are the purpose of these huts? Traditionally, huts in Scotland were for usually people from working class backgrounds to go out to the countryside during the holiday time and enjoy and experience the countryside. Is this is... different to bothies? Well, a bothy is a similar thing. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, a bothy is more kind of deep wilderness type thing mm. or a seasonal farm worker's dwelling. Um, whereas these huts were generally built at kind of either countryside locations or seaside locations or whatever. Okay. Um, and hutting still happens in Scandinavia. You must. Do you have, have you had a hutting episode yet? No. Oh right. Well, that's a it's a it's a shoe in. Honestly, it would be it would be great. Um, Excellent. Hook so uh, pe- pe- <laughs> people can talk about hutting far more proficiently than I can. I just saw this new planning designation. De- oh, designation to come in. Crucially, you don't need um, you do need planning permission, but you don't need building regs for mm. a hut, which is a bit of a gift for anything to do with natural building because it means you can circumvent a lot of nonsense, which is designed to serve no one but the big material producers, as far as I, in my opinion, I should say. <laughs> um, so, yes, so I looked at the building and thought, well, just handily, there's a wall down the middle of this building, which had obviously been inserted at a later date. But it just so happened that that split the building into two 27.5-square-metre bays. And nobody had ever tried a semi-detached hut before, but I thought, hey, it doesn't say you can't, so I'll give it a go. It's built out of materials which will leave no trace at the end of its life, mud, off-grid. Well, I wanted it to be off-grid anyway. I've always tried to live off-grid. Not that I am in this building that I currently speak to you from, but... You know, it's always been my intention to live off grid, and I mm-hmm. have for for most of my adult life. Um, yeah, so I thought, right, well, let's have the crack with it then. So actually, it we were successful. I think it was the first building in the southwest of Scotland to get hut designation. It it was the first building in Scot listed building in Scotland to get hut designation i think it was actually the first pre-existing building because it was actually the legislation had been designed for people that wanted to build new huts yeah um and the first semi-detached hut in scotland um so yeah i mean it was quite a groundbreaking play around with the planning rules um and actually they were dumfries and galloway council were delighted They were delighted that the building was going to be reused. Um, Historic Scotland were delighted that the building was going to be reused uh, and repaired Um, because ultimately old buildings need a use. Otherwise, if they become useless, then they're going to fall down because no one's going to take care of them. So, um, yeah. And as part of that, we got listed building and sent the planning permission to rethatch it, which was, um, yeah, was interesting. That was always a dream, wasn't it? Well, it was really, yeah. Everyone loves a bit of thatching, don't they? And there was there was clear signs over the whole building. I mean, there was remaining thatch on the eaves, that so it was clearly was thatched. Um, I understood the local vernacular of stob or staple thatching or stuff thatching um, quite well because I'd seen a handful of, of remaining examples in the area. Um, from the remnants that remained on the wallheads, it was quite clear that it was that type of thatching. So I will explain what I'm on about now. So stuff, stob, or staple thatching um, 
is when you lay down a layer of turf and then you push straw in and the weight of the turf holds the straw down. Um, so that was the method of thatching that we did because it was the local vernacular. Um, and in doing that, we ran quite a bit of training doing it, which was nice. Um, and yeah, rethatched it and it mostly worked. There's a couple of areas that needed a few more stops, but, um, yeah, mostly pretty good. So yeah, it was quite experimental. It was bloody hard work. I wouldn't recommend to mm. anyone lifting cutting and lifting 10 tons of moorland turf onto a roof. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it worked. And it's up there, and it's still standing, and it looks great. When were you last here? Did you go up and have uh, a look when you were up in I June? I had a peek, yes. Good, good. Yeah. So we're nearly there now. We're nearly there yeah. in terms of finishing, whatever that means. Um, mm. I am given up on on trying to define finished, but yeah. So um, I think finished is an abstract concept. It is, yeah. These things, they're cyclical. Yeah, and you're, <laughs> we're talking. Yeah, we're talking about a building that's never really finished because it's soft and you know it needs constant upkeep and yeah, not constant. But you know, and then it will um, probably fall into disrepair again at some point in the future. Yeah, and it goes to, or hopefully it won't. But you know, maybe it will, and then maybe someone will come along and reinvigorate it again. Mm. I'm just hoping there might be a blue plaque up saying former residents of Alex <laughs> Gibbons or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, it was great. It was great. And, and you know, I really, well, we've written it up for the SPAB and all that type of thing, but I should probably have done. I'm not a very good marketer. I don't really like being in, I mean, actually, this is quite nice. I mean, it's nice to do, to be talking. But, mm. you know, I'm not a big tweeter or Instagrammer or whatever. So there's not really too much about it. But if you like what you hear, get in touch. And, yeah, we have open days and stuff. So come and have a look. Yeah. Yeah. It's in a, a lovely bit of the world. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, a lovely little building. I uh, yeah. I was at some training recently with uh, Jew Sota. And, yes. And uh, Mickey and as part of the sort of training, everyone did a little presentation and the amount of times <laughs> your barn popped up <laughs> and I worked yeah. on this. So yeah, <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Again. Well, that's the great thing about it. So I'm a great believer in all of anything we do. I mean, I have loads of people from the princess foundation. have loads of like what I would call journeymen coming through you know, mm -hmm. people that are going from job to job and want to gain experience. And, you know, so uh, with both doing Prior's Lynn, uh, with being such a rare, special one-off building, we were able to do tons of training with it, which was great. And a lot of the time, either those trainees are getting paid by me as laborers, but also learning, um, or they're getting paid through other great programs like the SPAB fellowship or the Princess foundation building craft program. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So which I'm quite involved with. So we're, we're doing the live build. I'm doing the live build or helping with the live build with that this year. Yeah. We're doing it with building a new build mud building with that. So 
I think, and I remember your episode on training. People have, there's been quite a lot of discussion over that program before, which yeah. is, yeah, and you, well, you did it. I did it. Yeah. I, I feel like I was maybe their first earth builder, natural builder, because mm. they def, they did not know what to do with me. They were like, no. so when it comes to placements, what do you want to do? We don't know. <laughs> um, and I'm really pleased to see the sort of lineage. Yeah. I've known, uh, at least one person in every year subsequently. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's fantastic to see it, it being such a, a, now it's sort of like part of the, the route that people see as, uh, as their sort of way into, into natural building. So mm. that's, that's really good. And I think, you know, SPAB as well is, is sort of the other route. And I feel like that's less well known. That's sort of why I wanted to talk to you today was that like, the, the sort of old buildings route. You know. mm. I, I mean, Prince's Foundation is is heritage based, uh, but they definitely do have a you know an eco build hat on. If it's not maybe their biggest hat. Yeah, without doubt. I mean, I might I'm probably going to say something which you might not agree with here, Oof. but I, I, yeah, which I'm going to just try and see what happens. All right. All right, but I'm going to hang up if it's. <laughs> <laughs> but I must say that I don't. When I came back to the UK, yeah. I set up as Alex Gibbons Natural Building, mm-hmm. and actually, I don't. I never was able to, and I. I'm quite convinced. I don't think I'd be able to now earn a living out of doing new build natural building. But I know that that's not your experience. I think that's where we deviated, really, wasn't it, mm. uh, when we came back? You very much went down the new build, natural building route, and I very much went down the conservation heritage route. Yes. Um, because it never worked for me. I felt it was always that I never got that kind of flow of work. But with So what I say to students coming through now is that, you know, if they can – don't get me wrong, we get lots of – new nice new build natural building work too but as really my bread and butter seems to be from the conservation side of things and i do always kind of encourage students that come through now to maybe think along the same lines as that but then i don't know what do you think about that statement uh i think that you hate the climate and you don't want new builds to be uh, yeah yeah well, that, that's that's the main thing. I mean, I, I'm obviously a massive climate change denier. <laughs> uh, no, no, I was thinking uh, about it. I, I thought of it as like a, a slightly sort of facetious question that I don't actually truly believe. Uh, and it's a sort of question and uh, statement in one, I guess. It's that, you know, if in uh, 30, 30, 40 years, when, uh, when your daughter is, is sort of your age now and the world's on fire... And, you know, mass immigration is causing wars and there's no water and there's droughts and all this sort of stuff. Are they going to look around and go, God, I'm glad they kept all those old buildings around. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right. And I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at the Mick and Pat Show. 
You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I I kind of think they will. I mean, yeah. like, what's surely the most? I mean, I do. I hear your facetious point, which is yeah. your your right to identify highly facetious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, my thinking is, and maybe I'm just justifying this to myself, but I I I don't really, I do really believe this. What I'm about to say, in that. It's surely the best thing you can do is keep buildings going. Surely that's the most environmental thing to do rather than let buildings fall down and replace them with new ones. Because whenever you build anything, even if it's perfectly natural, there's always carbon impact. And Mm. if something's there and has been there for 300 years and you kind of look at it over its lifetime... Gosh, I mean that's that's pretty good bang for your buck, isn't it? I mean, it when is. it comes I, to new builds, which I mean, let's not get well. No, let's go down the conventional route for a second. I mean, hmm. these new builds that are on the scene now, which uh, maybe meet the highest of environmental standards, um, even in the conventional building industry, you know, Bovis Homes and all that, they're having to really up their game on. Yeah, in terms of meeting environmental standards, whatever that means, they'd be quite open with you that the buildings are designed to last forty years if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah, it's disgusting, now, isn't it? That's rubbish. I mean, that's total rubbish. So, I, I hear the counter argument, particularly with with you know people who say, "Oh, you've got to insulate these buildings and all the stuff," and there's a big technical conversation around that. I'm, I mean, mm. I'm not always a huge fan of insulation as far as i'm concerned with any solid wall whether it be stone or earth the best thing you can do is have maximum breathability because a dry wall is a warm wall if you were to insulate it with an incompatible material which means that the moisture can't leave it even if it's kind of compatible ish but not maximum breathability you're going to have a damp wall and a damp wall can never be a warm wall. So my feeling is always go down the maximum, um, going to say breathability, but you know what I mean when I'm talking about that, maximum ability for water to wick away out the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, don't get too cool. I mean, a big thing around here at the moment is diaphanite. Have you had any experience what with is this? Diaphanite? No. It's well it's NHL five plus I mean, I don't want any litigation here, but I would imagine a sprinkling of cement. Um ah. mm. and chopped up cork, which is Oh yes, I have seen that. Yeah. So somebody in around where I am has just done this to a mud building. And because it's NHL five, natural hydraulic lime five, which is a very Hard, you know, it sets very hard and starting England have proved exactly, yeah. And and they and the start England have now proved so it's not a contentious thing to say that in some cases it's set after a year, it's setting as hard as cement. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's being done in the name of eco upgrades, 
which is a good, you know, it's, uh, I'm sure is genuine, you know, they genuinely believe they're mm. doing that, but actually is incompatible. So you're going to have a damp wall and therefore it will never be a warm building. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm always, but then I don't run the heating silly and I don't like being warm in a house and not everybody's like that. So yeah, you know, I appreciate that too. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't and know. It was, I, it was, I mean, it was, I, sh- I should say, you know, it wasn't a, a genuine thing. I do truly believe that uh, we get a lot from heritage uh, sort of conservation and, you know, knowing the techniques, knowing, you know, I, I think that modern like natural building owes so much to the heritage sector for like understanding lime, kn- knowing how to use lime, how to wrap a building in it, how, you know, mm. clay, all of these materials, I think, you know, it, it's so good that the heritage people have been sort of, you know, doing that and keeping that alive. Um, mm. Yeah. I think they're mostly think, the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is mostly the same thing and that's i mean it's always funny to to come back and talk to you because we we sort of had that you know we trained together and then our, our paths diverted but yet we're doing largely the same stuff just with a slightly different mindset mm. um but yet there's this sort of big divide isn't there like the the natural builders the eco builders and the heritage world there isn't a huge amount of of uh sort of cross-pollination really well, I don't know. I mean, there's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, I mean, everyone that's come through to me through the Princess Foundation kind of seems to, actually, you're right to say, most people kind of come from that natural building world that are mm. interested in mud. And then I kind of give them a good <laughs> dose of conservation. And then they usually <laughs> come back around again to the natural building thing and kind of, mesh the two together i mean both are essential aren't they at the end of the day both are absolutely essential and it's not one or the other and i like say i do both but i must say that the majority of my work is definitely conservation yeah i think it's interesting that that sort of you know the the best building is a a building that already exists or the most eco building Mm. that's that's a a slight misquoting of the the reba uh mindset but I think they are looking, yeah, at, at retrofit and making an existing building mm. energy efficient, which just can't happen with uh, the listed building stuff. Mm. And that's all, you know, like for like materials. And I probably that's why that that diathonite, did you call it? Yeah, I, that's probably come up as a, a sort of skirt around that because they can render it in the, exactly. you know, the same material. It fits the listing. Uh, control but yet they're trying to add a bit of insulation yeah but it doesn't really do i mean i know in lab conditions it will be like sing all singing or dancing mm. but the reality is i mean i don't know i, I won't go down that route i just get into trouble <laughs> <laughs> anyway a dry wall is a warm wall that's right that's what i'm that's yeah. what i'm saying that's what I'm that's, talking about. That's what your yeah. blue plaque will say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like we should move on before I before I get in trouble. No, so I there think... you go. I've answered the first question. An yeah, hour and 42 great. minutes. Next. <laughs> <laughs> 
could you be the first triple episode? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I mean, I'm interested to talk more about SPAB. Yeah, let's talk more about SPAB. Because, um, so you're, are you involved still or are you? Uh... So I'm not doing so much with the SPAB at, uh, right. at the moment, uh, but I am still quite involved. Yeah. Cool. So you're, you're happy to talk about it. Um, Very happy. Love the SPAB. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Like I've I've had a few sort of instances of of working with them and and doing stuff for them and it's yeah, just a thoroughly great organization. Yeah. Um, it's a group of extremely like-minded people um that just love talking about old buildings, but very much um well, it was set up by William Morris and Philip mm. Webb um in the late 1800s, 1877. And it was set up not only as a building conservation group, but also kind of, with, I mean, anyone that knows anything about William Morris knows that he had a very strong socialist agenda. Um, so it's, and that I really feel that does kind of carry through to the society to this day, because it's very much everyone's on the same playing field, whether you're architect, engineer, surveyor, craftsperson um or indeed a homeowner with a strong interest you know everybody is there has a voice and everybody's on the same level and respects each other and it's one of the few places where i actually see that happen which mm-hmm. is great um and there's a great respect amongst us all for each other so yeah it's cool it's really cool um and I think people fight, think of it as being a bit old, fuddy-duddy, funny handshake brigade type of thing. But it's really not that. I mean, it, it's, like I say, the first time I went there was for my interview for the fellowship. And you walk in. Is that the, the lovely building in uh, Liverpool Street? That's right, yeah. Little yes, Square. Yeah, yes. yeah. So I went down there and it's, you know, obviously you're going for an interview, so it's quite full on or whatever, and you're in like a oak panelled room and there's four people, four or five people sat on one side of the table and you on the other side. Um and straight away, as soon as I started talking, it was just all that nervousness just kind of went away. We were just talking to people about what both you and they love. And they're interested to learn from you and you're interested to learn from them. And I'd, I'd actually never felt like that, especially in light of all that stuff about not really feeling like I was fitting in and it was a bit disjointed at times. Hmm. As soon as I went there, it all just kind of tied the whole thing together. And it was great, you know, and, and remains great. And I love being part of it still today. So, yeah, I'm very, very spab spab forever spab forever <laughs> i i struggle with the the yeah calling it spab uh, yes actually it's... william morris quite quite specifically says in his writings i do not wish it to be called the spab ghastly name it will be called the spab with big uh, big full stops between the letters so yeah <laughs> we should probably we should probably say spab yeah. yes Okay, good. Um, like, why? Like, what was William Morris's interest? So, you know, let's presume people know nothing about him. 
Yeah. So, because um, well, until until like you got into the SPAB, I knew William Morris as the guy who did the flower prints. Yeah. So yeah. he yeah he was a designer and maker as well, um, and had his own firm, Morris and Co, um, making wallpaper, stained glass, um, fabrics, um, furniture, um, all sorts. Um, but uh, he really. Um, just had an, a great appreciation for old buildings and traditional architecture. Um, and yeah, just kind of was trying to get back to something, what he felt to be a bit more real. That was kind of in retaliation to the Victorian era in which it was very popular to go into medieval buildings and so-called restore them to their former glory which usually means knocking the heck out of them and putting them to look fresh, shiny and new. But they may never have looked like that in the first place. It was very conjectural Mm -hmm. restoration. Whereas William Morris's approach is, and the approach of the SPAB, is very much to respect the age of the building. And if something's weathered and looks funny because it's weathered, then respect that because it's been there for a long time and conserve it as you find it and have respect for a wobbly wall and a and a you know weathered bit of stone or whatever as long as it's still doing its job um, yeah. and if you do need to repair it then repair it sympathetically with you know in a like for like way um and don't pretend you haven't repaired it you know you can put a new bit of stone in and it can look like a new bit of stone and that's obvious that you've made the repair and it's that it's not original and there's had to be some kind of intervention now a lot of people then get all excited and go oh that means the spab don't want us to do anything with any building ever and just want to repair everything and it's not viable that's not true at all so the whole philosophy of the spab is to say that a building needs to be in use and if you need to make an intervention to do that that's great and fine just don't try and make it look like it's old. You know, mm-hmm. make it clear, do a nice piece of modern design in there, differentiate it from between from the old and retain everything that's there and basically put the new onto the old rather than knocking the old about to fit the new in, which I think it's all fairly basic common sense stuff, you know. It's just a kind of... Um, a structure around which to make your decisions. And I think everything I've just said there is not a bad place to start. You know, it mm-hmm. can't always be a hundred percent pure and meet every requirement, but ultimately a building needs a use. And if you need to do something to change it or adapt it, then as long as that's putting it back into use again, then that's a good thing and encouraged by the SPAB. The sort of example that, well, I've I've experienced was working on, uh, what was it? It was a tithe barn that wasn't a tithe barn in Rickmansworth. Croxley? Great Croxley? Croxley Green, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so it's, uh, and we're repairing the old sort of flint lime wall uh, and where sort of stones were missing, we were putting in uh, little beds of tiles, sort of structural Mm. Um, and that was, yeah, it was a bit of a, a strange thing for me because I felt like this seems, it seems odd and it seems a bit wrong. But then, like, as I sort of got to understand the, the mentality behind it and, you know, not 
and we're, we're, we did a sort of walk around that that barn, and the people there that could identify, you know, timbers that were a different age by the different shape of the saw mark on the the timber, and then you know they'd look at a bit of stone and go, well, this has obviously happened here, and this has happened here, and this has happened here, and they could tell the whole story of the building because mm. of those like honest repairs mm. rather than like you know a bit where you were never sure when it you know when it was actually dated to so yeah, yeah. it really made sense to me and um, i really appreciate that Shane. good oh wow there you go you know <laughs> well it's what it's all about isn't it i mean you know and, and even if you're repairing a building which isn't that old or or even repairing a repair Mm-hmm. to kind of leave signs to the next generation. I, I like, you know, I really like that. That resonates with me because, as we were talking about earlier, the these buildings are cyclical. You know, they're going to get repaired again. Things come into use and fall out of use. And I think maybe slightly arrogantly, we always think if we, if we've repaired a building, then that's it. It's going to be great guns for that building for the rest of the time. And it's not like that at all. Stuff comes in and out of use and that building will go through many rounds of repair further down the line. And to leave kind of signs to the next generation of this worked, that didn't, here's what we did here and that's why we did it. And, you know, this building's been repaired before. Yeah, I mean, that's great, isn't it? It's interesting and you can gives you a greater depth of understanding of the building. So, yeah, I like it. Well, what about in the kind of natural building world? Is there like a, do you have like a society for the protection of natural building? No, no. Uh, I think you guys have got that covered. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there should be, you know, to like have this overarching philosophy of like approach, Hmm. you know, I don't know. might be interesting. That could be you. Yeah. You could be the William Morris of natural building. That, yeah, they'll say, oh, do you remember Jeffrey Hart's early days? Yeah. He was just a poor carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a bit like I'm going down a religious fable there. Uh, <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I mentioned it some stuff earlier, but what do you think heritage has kind of given to to the new build world? Well, I suppose probably a a lot to learn from, you Mm. know, the the mistakes of, as I was just kind of talking about, really, if you see what's gone wrong with a 18th century cob wall and what's worked and what survived and what hasn't, then, you know, that gives you a much better understanding of good detailing and what's good and what's not. the thing that I really find that the natural building world doesn't capitalize on more is it gives it uh, uh, this lineage, this, uh, a, a, this proof, you know. These buildings have stood for a long time. It's not a modern idea. It works, and it's worked for hundreds of years, you know, thousands of years, but there's actual standing evidence of people living in buildings which have worked for hundreds of years. So what's, what's your problem? It's, it's proved, you know, it's, it's done. The, the war is over. (laughs) 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 
Yeah, I mean, because, you know, just a lot of these things, people seem to try and reinvent the wheel and, you know, and say, mm. oh, this works. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, my whole thing is about, I always consider that the standards should prove to us or the building regs should prove to us you know why it shouldn't work not why it, why us prove to them why it should you know there's a, mud buildings that i know of which are from the 15th century in the in the wettest part of the uk you know don't tell me it washes away in the rain because it doesn't it's there and look and if you want to come and have a look i'll come and show you but don't tell me it's not going to work because it has and does and is you know perfectly yeah. functional building today until someone wraps it in cement render and yeah and, you know breaks the roof well until somebody tries to meet your bloody regulations yeah and mm. does all that stuff and then it all goes wrong yeah so it's always tragic isn't it and you get those news reports it's like oh you know old cob building collapses and everyone's going whoa you know the danger their hazard made of mud yeah. Oh. Cog falls down. Well, it yeah. hadn't fallen down until you mucked it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's it's just, yeah, I don't know. So I think that's what, what the natural building world has to learn is that it works and look at what's worked. Look at what's still standing and what, you know, and the ones that are still standing from the 1500s, 1600s are the, are the best ones because the ones that were rubbish fell down. So look at those and yeah they've proved themselves to work so do, yeah. do what they did i often uh, <laughs> i often wonder if uh like does the fact that there are buildings that are so old standing up mean that the people who built them knew what they were doing or is it that all the ones that were built by idiots that didn't know what they were doing fell down and we no longer like have that yeah yeah um because we we sort of herald, you know, people of the past as like, oh, of course they were, they knew what they were doing. They yeah, they worked the land, they did all this. No, I wonder it's if not that's that. actually true. No, it's just a happy <laughs> accident. You know, some people. It's just I, I don't I don't think it's. I mean, yeah, obviously when it comes to kind of decorative arts, you can tell the or decorative crafts like wood sculpting or whatever. You can really tell the difference between a great craftsperson someone that's really honed their craft and someone who was a have a go hero and did it at the weekend, you know, mm-hmm. um, when it comes to building crafts, you know, most of these mud buildings on the Solway were built by the people who are living in them who weren't natural builders at the time. They were just people that needed a house. Mm. And I think that that's really what we've got away from. So look at some of the crack frames on the Solway they're insane. I mean, how they've how they survive the first ten minutes, let alone you know five hundred years, is beyond me. You know, it's insane, but they do. And I think a lot of the time, it's uh, people aren't building for five hundred years; they're building for their family and maybe the next generation. And it just so happens that they did a good job, you know, because they yeah. cared. Um, and I always think it's mainly about that. I think you're going to build something good if you care about what you're doing, which we do. You know, you and I do. We we care mm-hmm. about what we're doing. We think about what we're doing. We're engaged and we have a reason for doing it beyond I've been told to do so. 
which is sad, but it's generally speaking, the mindset of what I see on site, oh, well, we can't argue with this because the architects told us to do it. We know it's wrong, but we can't say anything because it's down on the sheet. So, I mean, gosh, I couldn't live like that. I don't know. You know, I understand why it happens because people are in a job and don't want to stick their head above the parapet because if something goes wrong, then it's their problem. But, gosh almighty, if you imagine doing something that you – could you do that? Do something which you knew wasn't the right thing to do or Mm. felt wasn't the right thing to do because that's what it says on the sheet? Uh, I mean, I would like to say that I'd never do that, but <laughs> you know, sometimes you've just got to, yeah, just got to build the thing, haven't you? And that's the because of it, yeah, it's that that very sort of thing that means these sort of crappy buildings get built. Yeah, well, it is. We all need to stand up and go. No, nah, it's not good enough. Try mm. again. Well, it's just. <laughs> A builder will just build it. It's ten a penny. You yeah, exactly. Oh, 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 get someone else to do it then. Which I've heard before. You know, I've had specifications sent to me. This is why I gave up on the whole architect thing. And I've I've sent this, a new specification back, which I've priced for them because their specification. I said I'm not doing what you've said to do because this will happen, and here's the proof for that, and here's what I would do, and that's what I've priced. And gosh, they don't. It never goes very well. That's why I gave up on that type of thing because it's yeah. I'm not saying that I know better. I'm just saying that. Well, I suppose that is what I'm saying. But it's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, uh, I really think we're in a crazy situation where. You know, architects, they know a little about a lot. And craftspeople know a lot about their craft. So about That very small little bit. Yeah. So why shouldn't it be a two-way conversation? Yeah. I mean, anyone, it's impossible to know with the depth of understanding what every craftsperson knows. So when it comes to their bit, let them go, you know. The best architects do. Well, yeah, but... And they do, and I meet a lot of them that do the SBAB scholarship, and they're very, and they, some of them are great. But they're really, it's a rare, it's a rare skill to have, and it's it really is a, uh, you have to be quite humble to do it, don't you? So good on them, and we need well, more of them. Well done, you. But don't call me. <laughs> 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 oh dear good well that's uh that's the end of my career then no no this is just the beginning of you as a pundit <laughs> <laughs> very good very good uh what, have you got anything else, else you want to talk about um, right. <laughs> <laughs> well there's loads really there's loads i mean one thing that i've got on my list of things here that i have to bring up is mm-hmm. um about land ownership, which I, you know, I get, I get grumpy about. Uh-huh. Um, and I just, just to raise the example on the Solway, there's 300 clay buildings on the Cumbrian side of the Solway, and there's only supposed to be one on the Scottish side of the Solway, which is yeah. Prior's Lynn. Um, and there's no reason for that. The geology is the same with documentary evidence to say there were tens of thousands of, of clay buildings on the Scottish side as well. The only reason for it is land tenure. 
which I think says a lot. So by which I mean that on the Cumbrian side of the Solway, there was this thing called a customary tenancy, which was a, a tenancy held by a farmer, which could be passed down between generations. Um, and therefore they kept their buildings going and patched them up. Whereas on the Scottish side, because they had security of tenure, on the Scottish side, it was owned by the Dukes of Buccleuch and others. Um, and what that meant was that in the mid-1700s uh, onwards, they knocked down all their vernacular buildings and replaced them with ones which, as I mentioned earlier, they could increase the rents on virtually indefinitely. People didn't have security of tenure, so they never really did too much to them and relied on paying their rent and the buildings getting maintained on their behalf, which sometimes happened but often didn't. Mm. So I've got a real bee in my bonnet about security of tenure nowadays for people. You know, I I am not wholesale against, you know, uh, I th- think it's great if people can own their own buildings because I think it's good for the buildings ultimately because they can decide what to do. They care about it. They love it. They take literally take ownership of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not always available to everyone. So, you know, I, I'm totally pro these arrangements where people can live on the land and do their own thing on the land. But security of tenure is not a thing that we talk about much nowadays. And I think it needs a massive overhaul because we are increasingly getting into a situation where people don't have that and therefore don't bother repairing their buildings or can't build or or adapt them to suit their needs. And, you know, our, our most basic human need in life, shelter, is... Um, is basically being undermined by by capitalism, and that's that's rubbish, man. That's rubbish, and I'm lucky because I managed to buy prize then, but that was a well one off thing, and I don't, you know, I do count myself to be highly lucky in that mm-hmm. scenario, and I'm very mindful of the fact that a lot of people don't have those fortunate passing events. Um, so that's what, that's one thing I've got to be in my bonnet about. Um, in fact, that's the main thing I've got to be in my bonnet about at the moment. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. Do you see a, like a solution? Um, yeah, I think that we need something a lot more like a customary tenancy, which gives security tenure to pass between generations, but we've moved away from that rather than closer to it in the last even 10 years. Um, and, you know, ultimately, a lot of these people that own this land desperately have no clue what to do with it. They often accidentally landed up with it and even more often have no interest in it. Yeah. And they just farm it out to pay to, for people to manage it and all this stuff. And it's, yeah, something needs to change. And actually in Scotland, it feels quite, um, quite, quite palpable that a change is coming and just something has to change it throughout the UK. Um, and I think we perhaps getting to the point where hopefully, you know, the paradigm is becoming unacceptable or just not fit for purpose anymore. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, 
hopefully something's going to happen. But we'll see. Yeah, but I expect people like me have been saying that for the last, I don't know, 600 years. <laughs> yeah, only a William Morris socialist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but seriously, given that you brought him up again, read some, everyone go and read some William Morris. Go read News From Nowhere. Or, News From Nowhere. Yeah, or go and read some of his work. Uh, like there's a collection of essays called On Art and Socialism, uh, uh, lectures and, and, and essays. You know, the stuff he's talking about there, which is now, what, well, 150-ish years old, yeah. is as relevant today as it was then. And uh, if not, things have got worse, you know. It's funny, he's talking about Victorian speculative development, which we now hold in high esteem of, like, great quality building. He's talking about all that stuff like it's persimmon homes, you know, and it's it's <laughs> hilarious. And it is just, it's, we're going through the same thing. So, yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's amping me up as ever. Um, yeah. yeah, what else am I interested in at the moment? I mean, vernacular thatching techniques, it's really exciting to me at the moment. So um, hot right now. It is so, it's so in, isn't it? It's, mm. uh, it's, but you know, these unending different thatching techniques that you, that you see, particularly in the North of England and Scotland, um, it's a never ending subject, which I yeah. could, you know, I'd love to get deeper into and I am, um, and training and education. That's what it's all about, isn't it? So mm-hmm. lots of that as well. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, no, I think that's about it. No doubt I'll think of something later on. No. You can send me a voice note. I'll stick another hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there anything that you want to add or ask me? Well, thanks thanks for uh, for giving me the space to ask a question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think that's it. You've, you've covered all the things on my list. You've been a, a thoroughly wonderful guest. Good, thank you. Well, well that's thank- very, very nice of you to say. Oh, I'd say You've been a thoroughly that. wonderful host, Jeffrey, as always. Oh, oh <laughs> stop it! But I'm pleased to be on this thing, man. I'm pleased to be on this thing, and I and um and I'd yeah, yeah, encourage others to to do it because it's been quite an enjoyable process. Oh, thank you. Quite an enjoyable process. That's fine. Quite, quite, quite indeed. Quite, quite. <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
thank you so much to Alex. That was such a great chat. I haven't laughed that much during a podcast in a long time. Um, yeah, it's been a, a really interesting time sort of developing at the same time as Alex, uh, obviously doing our training together and the, the sort of parallels, but also the differences uh, in the, the, the way we've gone. So, yeah, always nice to chat about that. Um, yes, I think that's all I've got to say today. Uh, if you are new here, then uh, please do subscribe in whatever format you listen to this. Go back and check the previous episodes. There's 57 different ones to choose from. Um, and yeah, drop me an email if you've got something to say. I think that's about it. Thanks very much. Until next time. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.